Hello, everybody. How are we doing? Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I've got a very special guest with me today, um, E. Michael Jones. He'll be joining us right now. Uh, my name is Niall McConnell. I'm the leader of Shield and the Heron, an Irish Catholic Nationalist Party. If you haven't heard of us before, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit the like button, hit the bell notification, and share with your friends and family. Um, we're going to say the large prayer at Skelga uh, right now. So please let me get it up here now for you. Uh, there we go. Okay, so please join us uh, if you can. Inanim Nahar, Ogzavek, Ogzpur, Neve, Amen. Arnyahar, Atar now, go Nefer Danium, go Dagda Doret, go Nanter the Holler and Talav Mariantar now. Arnarn Lahul, Tordina New, Ogzmite doing our Vegda. Marawahim is Darvect in Afin, Ogzna Lunch in a Gahu, Axir, Shina Ulk, Amen. Inanim Nahar, Ogzavek, Ogzpur, Neve, Amen. Okay, welcome everybody to the show. And before I bring E. Michael Jones on, just to let you know that we have our own uh, Irish Catholic Patriotic Nationalist newspaper, the only one in Ireland. Uh, this is the third issue of the newspaper. You get a free picture of Our Lady of Fatima in it. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, we've got brilliant writers like Joseph Pierce, Andrew Joyce, Garota Coleman, and we ship our papers nationwide. And they're very, very cheap. So there's links below in the description to uh, order them. And think about joining Shield and the Heron as a member, get involved in real-life political action, whether, whether that be the pro-life action we do or the stalls, um, trying to wake up our fellow Irish brethren. So without further ado, let's bring on uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones here now. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Dr. Jones, how are you keeping? I'm doing fine. Good to be with you. Brilliant. Um, I've had you on a few times now. Um, it's been long overdue. I believe you have a new book, uh, Logos Rising. Do you want to maybe tell people where you can get that and what it's all about? Yes, it's a, a history of uh, ultimate reality. And you can get it at uh, culturewars.com or fidelitypress.org. Uh, it um, began uh, when I did the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit because I had to use the word Logos in that book to give a definition of what the Jew was. The Jew rejected Logos when they killed Christ. Uh, when you reject Logos, you reject the order of the universe. And when you reject the order of the universe, you become a revolutionary. And that's what they are to this day. And so it's relevant uh, politically uh, now because we are in the middle of a revolution in the United States of America. It seems to have died down for a little bit, but it will only increase in intensity as we uh, get closer to the election uh, when uh, Donald Trump is going to be uh, running uh, for the second term. So Logos uh, is the answer to chaos. A revolution spreads chaos. So the book is uh, out at the right time because uh, people need to know that there's an order to the universe. They need to know what that order is, and they need to uh, understand it so that they can resist the revolution that's going on right now because that revolution uh, is in many ways um, an attempt to deny people their identity. That, that's what's going on. <clears throat> uh, in many ways, usually in, in most recently, it's been an attempt to impose this racial uh, paradigm, racial conflict, race war on the United States of America. But in order to do that, they have to turn uh, most of the people into white people and their opponents are black people. And once that uh, paradigm gets imposed on everyone, uh, 
the forces of order lose. So it's important uh, to understand what our identity is, which is basically uh, our identity as rational creatures. That's all we've ever been from the moment of uh, history began. Uh, there was a disruption in this plan, uh, and it's called original sin, and it came about by because of Adam's fall. But in spite of that disruption, uh, God did not abandon his people. And so what you saw was a, a punishment uh, for the sin of Adam that pre precipitated man into a state of ignorance, which he had not been in before. And then you have the slow thousands of years of progress of trying to slowly, mankind trying to slowly work his way out of that state of ignorance. Uh, that's what the book is about. Uh, it begins at the beginning. It deals with the, uh, the four atheists. It shows that atheism is a psychological problem. It's not an ontological problem. Uh, God, you can prove the existence of God. If you reject the existence of God, uh, you're irrational and uh, we have to treat you as such. Uh, so that slowly I had to clear the, the, the clear the, the ground before we can talk about that. But you have slowly over this period of thousands of years, people trying to get back to that original sense of what ultimate reality was. God, God's identity, God's order in the universe, all that stuff is discussed in the book. You, may, you mentioned atheism there, and I see the rise of atheism, particularly in Ireland. And do you think that, that it's a coincidence with the rise of atheism and fall away from morality um, worldwide? But it's particularly in Ireland, I see it a lot here, because Ireland was an extremely Catholic country, and we're, we held uh, morals in high regard. Is there a coincidence there? And, like, uh, has atheism got anything to do with that, Dr. Jones? Uh, yeah, atheism comes about after uh, the moral order has been destroyed and people fall into a uh, state of sin. Uh, uh, this, this is something that takes generations, okay? And it's important because atheism is a generational issue. God is an exalted father. And that means you get your idea from your father. Now, if you're, if, if we have now, uh, let's, as a, as a uh, baseline, let's talk about the end of World War II in the United States, uh, the beginning of social engineering in a serious way, which included racial migration, the, the weaponization of racial migration in the United States, which I took, you mentioned, I talked about that in the slaughter of cities. It also meant the systematic corruption of uh, morality. Because morality is something you believe because it's an ultimate reality. You believe it because it was handed down to you as a part of your, your nature. You believe the Ten Commandments because you believe that uh, God handed those Ten Commandments to Moses. It comes directly from God. You don't have any choice in this matter. You, you obviously have the choice of whether you can follow them or break them, but you have no choice in the matter of what they are. Well, over this period of time, that's precisely what was contested. Now, generally, it's not a good idea to contest it directly. And this is precisely what Wilhelm Reich discovered in, in Austria during the 1930s when he tried to combine uh, sexual revolution, he's the man who invented the term, with communist revolution. 
people uh, had a natural curiosity about sexuality, which they did not have about communism. And so he used that to get their interest. And then he created, created a, a playbook of how you could take over a conservative culture. Now, Austria, in this sense, was just like Ireland. It wasn't, I mean, it was a conservative Catholic country at this time. They had lost World War I, okay? The Austro-Hungarian Empire had been thrown into disarray. There was chaos in some sense. Uh, revolution was all over the place. But it was a conservative place. And uh, even in Vienna, it was conservative, where the, the Jews were strong. And he was a student. He was a Jew. He was a student of uh, Wilhelm uh, Starr. He was a student of Sigmund Freud. And he was also a communist. So he had all these both forms of uh, Jewish revolutionary spirit here. And he basically said, if you're in a conservative society uh, and you're dealing with a seminarian uh, Catholic church, don't don't debate the existence of God with this man. Uh, basically corrupt his morals uh, and seduce him sexually. And that's precisely what happened. Uh, Wilhelm Reich ended up uh, dying in prison, uh, insane, I think, from syphilis. But uh, he appeared on the cover, 11 years after he died, he appeared on the cover of uh, the New York Times magazine as the man who had the formula for sexual revolution. That was his term. So you get the clergy involved in sexual deviance, and then you have a beachhead, and then you can sort of bring the whole house down once you establish that. And I think that's what happened both in the United States and Ireland. And I think in many ways it was worse in Ireland because, uh, uh, as James Joyce, James Joyce said, the Irish were a priest-ridden people. The, the priest had a higher uh, position in Ireland than he had in the United States. It was a homogeneous culture. They were trained to be decent people in a way that left them open for this type of exploitation. And that's precisely what happened at this time. The, the morals were corrupted. Uh, the initial sense of solidarity, let's say political solidarity of who we are, was subverted by this campaign of sexual revolution, uh, which started out to attack the clergy. And over this period of time, what you saw was the Irish simply losing identity. They lost their identity one step at a time, largely through that we're talking about a, a, a campaign that evolved over a period of time and became more and more sophisticated and more and more pernicious. So if you go back to America where this whole thing started, you would have someone like Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey, the entomologist from the University of Indiana, coming out with the Kinsey reports, which had a devastating effect on sexual morality in the United States of America and even worse in Germany which was a, certainly a Christian country and largely a Catholic country after World War II because of the, simply the Bundesrepublik, the western part of Germany, was more Catholic than the eastern part. It had, I, there's a chapter on this in Logos Rising. Uh, we're dealing with uh, Werner Heisenberg and the collapse of, of atomism. So this is what was happening then. By the, time it got, by the time they got around to dealing with Ireland, I mean, this was pretty far down the road, and they had much more sophisticated techniques in dealing with it. But the principle is the same. It's, in effect, what you have here is uh, immorality, moral subversion, leading to lack of identity, let's say, in the, uh, in the parent generation, 
the people fall away from going to church, the religion gets cold, and then the next generation comes along and they've got nothing but weak fathers. And because they have weak fathers, they are prone to atheism because God, they get their idea of God from their father. And so you have the, historically, what you had was the rise of this thing called this dance craze, this fad called the new atheism, which appeared around 2010, about 10,000 years ago. And what you saw was these were the, the, the children of the people who had been corrupted early on by the sexual revolution. The father was weakened, his place in the home was weakened. And so as a result, there was atheism rampant. And the other manifestation of the weak father is homosexuality. So both of these things came into being at around the same time as a result of previous forms of moral subversion that had been taking place ever since World War II, the end of World War II. Um, regarding moral subversion in the Catholic Church, has Vatican II got anything to play with it? Um, infiltration, um, maybe the hiring, the intentional hiring of homosexual priests? No. Uh, no, it doesn't. If you're talking about Vatican II as the documents, no, the answer is no. And this has become a convenient uh, whipping boy for people who don't do historical research. Okay, if you want some historical research on what actually happened at Vatican II, based on the archives of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, uh, the Kroll papers, because Cardinal Kroll was there running Vatican II, then I suggest that you read my book, John Cardinal Kroll and the Cultural Revolution. This is real research, not just this post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy type of thinking that has become pervasive now for some reason or other, because I guess people don't know. They don't know. They got to find some reason. It, it obviously went wrong somewhere. It must have been uh, 65. I guess it was Vatican II. Well, that, that, it is important. 1965 is an important year, but you got to distinguish between the council and the people who set out to subvert the council. So I, again, John Cardinal Crow and the Cultural Revolution, about that from his point of view, his involvement. Secondly, uh, the chapter on uh, um, Nostra Tate and Malachi Martin, the Irish priest, American at this point, and the role the Jews played in trying to subvert Nostra Tate. There's a whole chapter on that in the Jewish revolutionary spirit, okay? The, 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 the council fathers, the Jews went into this council with one goal in mind. They wanted to exonerate the Jews from responsibility for killing Jesus Christ. That did not happen. The council fathers rejected that plan. They have a statement there that is kind of ironic, something to the effect of, although not all Jews at the time of Christ were responsible for his death, but they are asserting that the Jews were responsible for his death. And that means that attempted subversion failed. And the final thing that I would recommend is uh, uh, David Wemhoff's book on John Courtney Murray, uh, Time Life, and uh, the, um, and the, uh, the uh, attempt to subvert uh, the council through dignitatis humanae. That was the statement on uh, religious freedom. Uh, John Courtney Murray was a very influential Jesuit priest at this time. Uh, he had been on the cover of Time magazine in uh, 
1960, right after John F. Kennedy was elected president. And he had been appointed by the uh, Harry Luce, the publisher of Time magazine, as the spokesman for Catholicism. Uh, because he knew that Lewis agreed with him on the crucial issue that they wanted to contest at Vatican II, which was the separation of church and state. John Courtney Murray was working with Time Magazine. Time Magazine was the public relations arm of the CIA. The link between the CIA and Time Magazine was a man by the name of C.D. Jackson. You can read about that in that book on John Courtney Murray. Okay. again, there was a group of people, a powerful group of people who went into Vatican II with a clear plan of subversion in mind. And it failed. It failed because the Vatican Vatican II, the document did not say we support the separation of church and state. That was John Courtney Murray's mission. And he failed. He failed in achieving it. So if 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 you're going to talk about Vatican II without any of this historical research, you're going to get into the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, which is basically it happened after Vatican II, so therefore it happened because of Vatican II. That is not the case. And and people who write books about infiltration and stuff like this, who never name names, who who, who generate these vague kind of conspiracy theories, they don't do the faithful any favors because they spread and they spread the feeling of distrust. That is precisely what our enemies want at this moment. They want the sense uh, that Catholics don't trust their church anymore. That's precisely the feeling that they're trying to create. And these people like this create it. I'll give you one more example. I was, uh, I've told people, these are people, 20-year-olds, people of this generation, who are addicted to pornography and uh, overburdened with student loan debt and living hopeless lives. And I'm saying there is hope. There is Logos is still alive. You can join up with that plan. The vehicle of Logos in human history is the Catholic Church. Join the Catholic Church. I get letters back saying, I can't do that. The church is run by faggots. And I said, well, who told you that? And he said, Michael Voris. So Michael Voris is not doing, he's a homosexual himself. He's not doing people any favors by discrediting the Catholic Church. Is there a problem of homosexuality in the Catholic Church? Yes. But again, we have to be specific here. Let's get specific. What is the headquarters of the homo mafia in the Catholic Church? It's the Jesuit order, especially in the United States. And it's people like uh, Father James Martin. So in the absence of any spe- specificity, we're going to cause more problems than we're going to solve. Um, what do you make of Cardinal Vigano's letters? And I think he was quite critical of Vatican II, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. He engaged in precisely the type of behavior that I just criticized. Cardinal Vigano, uh, his, his heart is in the right place, okay? He was the one who arranged the meeting between Kim Davis, the lady uh, in uh, Kentucky who refused to give out gay marriage certificates, and Pope Francis. Apparently, that didn't go well. Uh, apparently, his, uh, Pope, the Pope's advisors said that it didn't play well in Peoria or someplace. And so Vigano ended up uh, being uh, uh, ending up 
on the wrong side of the Pope and ended up being dismissed by him. He was nuncio of the United States at that point. This is precisely the time when Cardinal McCarrick was the big cheese, the big power in the Catholic Church, and he was a homosexual. Well, you know he's a homosexual. Okay, and Vigano has since then uh, said, you know, blamed Vatican II and blamed Freemasonry. Okay, there are two things that he blamed. Uh, I agree with his uh, position on the COVID virus, things like that. But to blame Vatican II and Freemasonry is not uh, based on historical research. I'm sorry. And, And you're doing the church no favors by blaming Vatican II. I've already given you a detailed explanation of two groups that tried to subvert Vatican II and how the church fathers, 2,000 bishops, resisted that attempt. You were casting aspersions on 2,000 bishops when you you denigrate uh, Vatican II, and any ambiguities in the documents can be easily resolved by interpreting them in light of tradition. So why are you doing this? And secondly, the whole thing about Freemasonry. Is that really the biggest issue right now? I mean, if this were the 18th century and and uh, uh, the Pope were talking to the Duke uh, de Choiseul from France, I would rush to the Pope and say, wait a minute, you have to understand Freemasonry because the Duke de Choiseul was a Freemason and he was suppressing the, he was his job was to suppress the Jesuits. Uh, which he did successfully. And the only reason the Pope went along with it was because he was clueless about the state of uh, art of warfare, uh, psychological, spiritual warfare in his day. Okay, I know it comes as a surprise to some people, but we're no longer in the 18th century. We're in the 21st century. And Freemasonry is an obsolete revolutionary movement. Okay, the Duc d'Orléans, uh, before he has had his head chopped off as Philip Egalité by the revolution he supported, wrote an autobiography, and he said uh, basically that Freemasonry was the candle and revolution is the sun. And when the sun comes up, the candle is no longer necessary. Well, the entire history of the 19th century is the history of revolution and the diminishing effect of Freemasonry. Now, I'm not denying that it had an effect in places, okay? But to say that right now, uh, Freemasons are at the heart of the problem here is to totally misread the situation and totally to send people down a blind alley. And if you want my humble opinion, the only reason that people say things like Freemasonry is because they're afraid to say the word Jew, Now, if you want to talk about the real moving force in human history, all the way from the foot of the cross to the present day, to St. Louis, for example, which I think we should talk about because it's a hopeful sign, what does that uh, anti-Logos group have in common? It's the Jewish revolutionary spirit. That's why I wrote that book. That book is more relevant now than ever because we have uh, a very rich Jew by the name of George Soros, funding groups like Black Lives Matter, which, and Antifa, I don't know, I don't see, I don't know about Antifa, okay? It's a Jewish organization. Maybe Soros is funding it, maybe he's not, but he is definitely funding Black Lives Matter, and they are creating the revolution right now. So uh, what I'm seeing here is uh, people, are, are, are you saying, I want to be as polite and respectful as possible, 
But I'm asking uh, uh, Archbishop Vigano right now, is George Soros a Freemason? No. We already know one of the major players here, okay? And Freemasonry is not part of his resume. And so, therefore, why are we barking up the wrong tree? I think, as, as I said before, I think the main problem here is the inability to say the word Jew. It's the inability to criticize Jews. And if you want to trace it back to Vatican II, you can trace, trace it back to Nostra Aetate if you want. But the real villain here is not Nostra Aetate. It is the superstructure that got erected on Nostra Aetate known as Catholic-Jewish dialogue. That has been a total failure a total failure. It's a failed experiment and it needs to be abandoned as soon as possible. So switching gears a little bit, uh, Dr. Jones, uh, why do you think uh, during the abortion referendum in Ireland, uh, the Catholic Church stayed so silent? That is a mystery to me that I, I cannot understand unless I mean, I'm talking, I'm not talking based on <laughs> historical research here. I have not done the historical research. I am talking a priori here. And the main reason that I can come up with is blackmail. You cannot underestimate the effect of blackmail on uh, the clergy. Okay. Uh, McCarrick is a classic example of a man who went along with everything that the regime in America wanted because he was blackmailable. Now, whether they had, they probably had photos of him in some compromising situation, but we know that that's the situation. And we know that uh, there were similar instances in, uh, in Ireland. Now, the question, it, 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 all of us are in a sense blackmailable because of our guilty consciences. Uh, but when that becomes a habit, when it becomes something extreme, then the entire church suffers and I think that's uh, the case throughout the world right now. The corruption of the clergy that took place uh, whenever you want to start it, you know, after Vatican II, uh, after World War II, whenever you want to begin it, had a devastating effect on church unity. And, and the, the main group uh, involved in this blackmail operation were the Jews again. They were the group, the group that promoted pornography. They were the group that promoted sexual corruption. And then when the sexual corruption took hold, they were the group that praised certain people through their media, the media they controlled as uh, forward-thinking Catholics. One of the most notorious uh, molesters uh, in Boston was praised by the Boston Globe uh, for being such a, a, an innovator when it came to uh, youth ministry, this type of thing. These people were all praised. We had this period of, of uh, uh, false friendship. And then when the, when, the, when the situation was right, then the hammer came down. And at that point, we have not the, uh, the Jewish uh, pornographer, but the Jewish prosecutor, Lynn Abrams in Philadelphia uh, on the board of the ADL. Uh, Kant uh, does uh, an inventory investigation, a grand jury investigation of Catholic clergy can't, can't bring one single indictment. Uh, and so instead of uh, just shutting it down and shutting up and going on to something worthwhile, she publishes the dossiers and pictures of 300 priests whom she by definition could not accuse of a crime. 
Now, this is war against the Catholic Church. The, the Jew in Harrisburg did exactly the same thing. He came up with one conviction, one, one case, one prosecution, one case he could prosecute, and but released all of the, the photos of all of the people who should be presumed innocent until guilty. Now, if we have to wake up to this fact, okay, that the church has enemies, and there's a group that has been the traditional enemy of the church from the foot of the cross to the present day. And if we can't criticize this group, we are going to lose every single battle in the culture wars. So I was talking to you before the interview started that uh, last Friday there, uh, Muslims had a festival, um, El Eid, uh, after their Ramadan, and they actually had it in Irish, Gaelic, Catholic, cultural center croke park it's where our gillic games are played it's considered you know, the central um area of irish gillic culture and the gillic athletic association allowed these muslims to pray there um is this just another well in my opinion this is just an all-out assault and attack of irish catholic culture um when i told you that what was your first impressions uh dr jones oh sorry before i let you interject there Archbishop of Dublin attended uh, this so-called festival as well. Yes, I knew I knew uh, Dermot Martin in the 1980s. I um, talked with him then. He was the assistant to Cardinal Gagnon, who was the head of the congregation for the family. I remember meeting with him in the Cardinal Gagnon's office in Trastevere. I remember him uh, chairing, I believe it was the Synod on the Laity in the mid-80s. So it's not a mystery to me uh, what the mystery is, why he is, where, where this failure of leadership came from. I do not know. I cannot answer that question. But let's go back and try and parse this thing. Let's try and take it apart brick by brick here. Okay. Is Ireland under assault by weaponized migration? The answer is yes. Okay. Weaponized migration always means uh, bringing an alien group into a, a homogeneous culture. Okay, does that mean that the alien group are bad people? No, the answer is no, because they are simply being pawns moved around on a chessboard. Chessboard now is basically Syria. Uh, the refugees that were created by the war there are now being weaponized by Turkey, uh, that ex uh, a, a country which extorts large amounts of money uh, by turning the, sp the immigration spigot off and on to intimidate uh, Europe, uh, all of Europe, not just Ireland. Ireland is particularly weak, and the sign of their weakness is that they can't, simply can't resist in the way that uh, Hungary and Poland have resisted this weaponized migration. Why can't they resist? Well, because they uh, have been victims of identity theft, because they lost the faith, because they don't know who they are. And they think if they assert that we are Irishmen, that they're committing some type of sin of discrimination. This is preposterous. That is not the situation here. If the, the Irish were the victims of ethnic cleansing in the 1950s in America, this is nothing new. If you look at Philadelphia, there were Irish neighborhoods that were the most vibrant Catholic neighborhoods in that country, in that city. And they were all swept away by... Uh, weaponized migration from within the country. I'm talking about the black sharecroppers who came from the South. 
in Philadelphia, they came from North and South Carolina. In Chicago, they came from Mississippi. These people were brought in. Are they bad people? Are they bad people, those sharecroppers? No, they're not bad people. I taught these people when I was a t- teacher, a professor at Temple University. Okay, they were pawns. They were, they were, they, they were 60, 50, 60 year old black women in my composition class, falling asleep in class, not because I'm not a brilliant lecturer. I am a brilliant lecturer, but the fact that they'd already worked a full day and they were old and they were tired. And then when you talked about their experiences, the one woman said that she, when they were in North Carolina or whatever it was, South Carolina, their family was so poor, they couldn't afford a mule. So she was the mule. She pulled the plow. And her husband was behind the plow. This is the type of people, they they jumped at the chance to make a decent wage by moving north. And the collateral damage was the destruction of the Irish neighborhood uh, in uh, 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 Most Blessed Sacrament Parish, which you can read again, uh, real historical research in John Cardinal Kroll and the Cultural Revolution. Okay. So. Just to play devil's can I play devil's advocate here a little bit, Mr. Jones, regarding um, the influx of migrants and uh, different people into the cities, like Boston, example, for example, in Irish neighborhoods. Um, when the Irish were, for example, in Boston, um, would, and they made some money and they were able to afford to move out the suburbs, did, did, would they not just naturally want to leave, or was it a case of migration from the south, or you know, no? You, the, the overwhelming, the conclusion I came to after all of the research I did for the slaughter of cities, urban renewal and ethnic cleansing is that those people liked where they were. They, they, they liked being in a neighborhood where you, there were a lot of people, was densely populated, where everyone shared the same values and where you knew each other and could, could, could uh, communicate with these people. They did not want to move. Okay, the social engineers wanted them to move. I, 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 it was all the way up into the 80s. I'm, I'm, I, went, I was in Gray's Ferry. Gray's Ferry is the, the other Irish neighborhood or one of many Irish neighborhoods in Philadelphia. And they were still holding on and they were being subjected to uh, the, the hammer of a Jewish prosecutor and the anvil of a black criminal class that was engaging in, in crimes against them, which would not be prosecuted. That's, that's why they moved. It wasn't white flight. It was ethnic cleansing. Michelle Obama called it white flight. Y'all didn't want to talk to us. Michelle Obama said, no, y'all were engaged in ethnic cleansing. That's what you're doing. Now, where, where, did they know what they were doing for the most part? No. What happens here, and this is true of Europe right now, as, as was true of Chicago in the 1950s, if you get a group of people uh, 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 with their own culture, which is what the black sharecropper had in places like Mississippi, and you move them around to a new culture, uh, they are going to get involved in criminal activity. And if they don't, their children will. Because most people derive their sense of morality from custom. You do what other people do around you. And then when you're moved to a new environment, suddenly it looks as if all bets are off. And this is exactly what happened to the black sharecroppers. The father of uh, my friend, Gloria Hardy, 
who was uh, two years younger than me, the trauma she went through, through at the hands of her father of sexual molestation was all a function of a man who had no idea what morality was other than what he was told. And what he was told at that time, what he knew at that time was that there was a, a system called segregation that held him down. And then the civil rights movement comes along and says, no, no, they're all bad and you can do whatever you want. And so whatever he wanted was basically, you know, uh, the blues and uh, whiskey and fast women in the bars on the south side of Chicago. That naturally led to crime. And then when you have prosecutors who will not prosecute for political benefits, you have the recipe for ethnic cleansing. That is precisely what is going on now in St. Louis. Okay, just to tie the strands together here, the prosecutor in St. Louis is a lady by the name of Kim Gardner. She's black. She is she got elected because George Soros gave her a lot of money. And once she got elected, she imposed a racial the the racial uh, opposite of Southern segregation on the city of St. Louis. She declared we're not going to uh, prosecute marijuana laws. Black people could engage in criminal activity once again with impunity. And if white people, again, uh, uh, the, the McCluskey, I'm talking about the McCluskeys in a video that became famous, the blacks break into their gated community. They come out with guns uh, to defend their house because they called the police and the police told them they're not going to come. And so as a result, they're going to be prosecuted. So this is the type of race war that our, our Jewish friends, our Jewish elder brothers, people like George Soros, are orchestrating in the United States of America in cities like St. Louis. What do you make of these uh, Black Lives Matter protests, these race riots? Um, churches are being burnt down. Junipero Serra statues have been pulled to the ground. A couple of the churches have been burnt to the ground too. What do you make of all this? And what's the, what's the end goal? Are they looking for a, like a communist revolution? Yes. Yes. In a, in a word, yes. We had the rebirth of communism. We thought it was dead. Now it was reborn in the gender studies programs at every university in the United States of America, except that it's Wilhelm Reich's version of communism, which believes in sexual revolution as the preliminary to a real revolution. So you've had basically how many years of bad edu education have you had? I got started as a journalist complaining about bad Catholic education at places like Notre Dame and St. Mary's 40 years ago. 40 years ago, a lot of water flows over the dam in 40 years. You've educated generation after generation of Catholic people with bad education. And you have the culmination of this with the mayor of Seattle, the lesbian mayor of Seattle, Jenny Durkin, who happens to be a Notre Dame graduate. This is the, 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 the fulfillment of this, of this uh, basically, uh, the beginning of the revolution was in the mind of the university. And you had people at Notre Dame like Joe Buttigieg, the mayor of Pete Buttigieg, the, the, the gay uh, failed presidential candidate, uh, moving from basically the mind of the people that got corrupted in college to the streets. OK, there's a clear movement here, and it was based on bad education, similar to the corruption of the French intellectual uh, group. Uh, in the run-up to the uh, French Revolution, where the Palais Royal would promote uh, anti-religious tracts and pornography. 
uh, as a way of subverting, uh, bringing down the House of Bourbon. Same thing is happening in the United States. It has reached the point now where groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter have the collaboration of the mayor of certain cities. Okay, they, uh, the mayor will not enforce the law here. Okay, I'm talking about Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, another lesbian mayor appointed by Obama to be U.S. attorney. If there's one lesson of the summer of 2020, it's don't vote for lesbian mayors. You won't have law and order in your city. Your city will burn down because she won't stop it. Okay, that's one city after another. The mayor, the, all Democrats, all orchestrating, uh, allowing this violence as a way of promoting a revolution whose ultimate goal or pr- first goal, not ultimate, but preliminary goal is the uh, removal of Donald, Donald Trump from office. What do you think of his chances of being reelected? Or? Every time a city burns, his chances go up. Every time we get uh, news from uh, Portland and Seattle, every time the mayor of Portland sides with the demonstrators when they're burning down federal buildings, uh, Trump gets uh, lots of votes, lots of votes. Uh, this is uh, uh, I, I was uh, I was alive. I was 20 years old in 1968 and watched the riots outside of the Democratic Convention in Chicago and lived through that, which was a kind of revolutionary period. And that was nothing compared to what's going on right now, because the mayor had no qualm. Mayor Daley had no doubts about what he had to do. In Chicago, Lori sided with the revolutionaries. She allowed the revolutionaries to burn down buildings in the loop. And then the revolutionaries were going to take over Holman Square, uh, except for the fact that the feds showed up and the feds own Holman Square and they drove them off. So if we're up to Lori, that city would still be under siege. These are revolutionaries. This The first job of a, a ruler is to maintain public order. That means all of these people have failed. They should all be driven from office. They should all be replaced. And that may very well happen in November. Is that why Trump didn't send in like the National Guard to a lot of these cities? He allowed it, allowed the chaos to ensue so he would get reelected. You know, George Washington statues, Abraham Lincoln statues were pulled to the ground. Why didn't he do more? He did. He He's the only one who did anything. He's the only politician who actually did something. He's the one who sent the federal troops into Portland and they stopped Antifa from burning down federal buildings. He's the one who saved the Andrew Jackson statue in in, in Washington, D.C. When he um, announced that uh, there was now a federal law, we admit they were going to spend 10 years in jail if they uh, destroyed a statue. He did do something. Uh, the reason you don't know about it is because the press will never uh, print a positive article about Donald Trump. The, but the, uh, is that the, yeah. the, the situation I wanted to talk about is the situation in St. Louis because that was a statue battle and the Catholics won that statue battle. Now, how do they win this? this? There's a lesson for Ireland here. OK, there's a lesson for Ireland here. First of all, because there were lots of Irish and Germans who went to St. Louis during the course of the 19th century. And the, the St. Louis was named uh, by two French fur traders uh, after a man who was a saint. He was a saint. And, and 
in spite of what uh, people write in newspapers today, there's probably reason that he was a saint. He pro- he did lead a holy life. Now, he did things that Jews don't like. He burned the Talmud. And this is precisely what the revolutionaries fastened on. But as soon as they did that, they lost their reason to exist, which was always racial. This is a race war. So the only way, that, so it turns out there's a Muslim who is leading the charge to tear the statue down. And he announces that the people who are defending the statue are all white. They're not white. They're Catholic. If you allow yourself to become white, you will lose, you will, you will allow identity theft, which is precisely what this man was doing. And once identity theft takes place, you lose. So what happened in uh, St. Louis is the identity theft did not take place. The Catholics kept writing back to this guy saying, no, no, we're not white supremacists. We're Catholics. We're going to pray the rosary because we believe that the statue should stay there because St. Louis is a saint. And we stand by that assertion. No matter what you say, we stand by the assertion. This statue should not come down. So a showdown showed up, uh, uh, was announced uh, July eleventh, uh, Umar Lee says white supremacists are going to come to beat up a group of Catholic, uh, Christian, Jewish, and Muslim ladies. Well, who wants to have ladies being beaten up? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't that he was again engaging in identity theft because he said it was white supremacists who were going to do it. The showdown came. Nobody showed up on Umar Lee's side. Okay, maybe a couple people, but thousands of Catholics showed up to pray the rosary and they were led in by a procession led by a black nun, looked like an African nun. Well, that just destroyed the entire racial narrative. And at that point, I released my article on St. Louis. You can read this. Go to culturewars.com, iconoclasm in St. Louis, read the article. And once the real dynamic was exposed, in other words, the real uh, manipulation of race and identity theft, he lost. How do I know he lost? How do I know the article had an effect? Because within hours, he challenged me to a debate. And you can go on bit shoot and you can watch that debate and see how this guy fared in dealing with someone who would not agree to his plan of identity theft. I'm saying this is the formula. It's the only formula that's going to succeed. It will succeed in Ireland as ver- as much as it has succeeded in St. Louis. It's the only way forward. Speaking of Ireland, uh, is there any hope for Ireland or what's your advice to the Irish people? I just gave you my advice. Okay, do not get allow yourself to become the victim of identity theft. The Irish people have their identity is Catholic. It's been that way ever since St. Patrick arrived there. If you allow them to separate ethnicity and religion, you will lose. As soon as you stop being Catholic, you become white. Do you want to be white? As soon as you're white, you're a racist. As soon as you're a racist, you lose every argument. It's obvious that this is the strategy for Ireland as well. It's identity theft. It's imposing a false identity on the Irish in the, uh, 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 th- through the manipulation of social media, uh, big corporations like uh, Google. I also have a piece I did a few months back called How Google Conquered Ireland. This is state-of-the-art warfare. This is exactly the way warfare is being waged in the 21st century. And the sad fact of the matter is that the Catholic Church does not understand this. 
And if you try and explain it to Catholics, they get mad at you. They'd rather be deceived than have their deception exposed. That's a fundamental fact of human nature. Now, Ireland has a lot of Polish Catholics. You know, does that make them Irish then as well? Oh, after three generations, yes. Okay, this is precisely the situation that was in America. In South Bend, Indiana, you have St. Hedwig's Parish and St. Patrick's Parish, one block away from each other, one block away. Why is that? It's because when they first came over here, the Poles could not talk to the Irish. Couldn't do it. You can't have solidarity if you can't talk to people. By the second generation, the Poles all spoke English and they could talk to the Irish and largely lots of them got married. I am biracial. I am the result of a biracial marriage. My father was Irish and my mother was German. What did they have in common? Catholicism. So the fact that a Polish immigrant who steps off the plane uh, in Dublin cannot speak uh, 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 either English or Irish does not mean that eventually they will not become part of Irish identity if they stay there, if they have children there. But even if a Pole is in Ireland for three generations, they still, their blood is still Slavic, you know, I'm an Irishman. My ancestors go back thousands of generations in Ireland. I have Irish blood. How can a Pole and a Catholic, a Polish Catholic man living in Ireland that's here for three generations? How do you know you have Irish blood? What is Irish blood? What about the people well, of Iceland? They have they probably have more Irish blood in Iceland than you have in Ireland. What difference does it make whether how many how many Danes showed up in Ireland. How many Spaniards after the, uh, what about the black Irish? Do they have Irish blood? Does It's the fact that the, the Spanish Armada crashed on the West coast of Ireland, that those people went native and married Irish women. Does that affect Irish blood? This blood business is stupid. I, I'm not. I'm not arguing against your culture. I'm just saying you're barking up the wrong tree if you think somehow that blood creates your culture, as opposed to religion or language or or custom or anything else. It's just a crazy form of biological determinism. It doesn't work. But I mean, like be, say honest, be honest with me. Do you know? Do you know? Uh, whether your great 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 grandmother had Danish blood or not, do you know that? Well, I have actually checked that. Um, we can check the census here. And my great-great-great-grandparents live 15, 20 minutes up the road. They were Catholic Irish farmers. So, yes, I can go back that far. Okay. But, like, that, that's just the whole thing. Like, if um, two, a couple from Senegal come to Ireland and they're Catholics and they have, you know, they stay for three generations, does that, are they Irish then? Are they Irish Catholics? Like, Tell me, first of all, three generations later, uh, who, who, who is the second generation going to marry? Are they going to marry another couple from Senegal? That's not what happened in America. Uh, it, it's, it's just a new situation. Let's, let's be honest. Okay, Ireland is an, is an island. You're off by yourself. Okay, no man is an island anymore, much as we would like to have it. And the question is, can you make a start with someone a cat, let me let me ask you the question: Is it better? Can you make a? Is it easier to make a start with a Catholic from Senegal than a Muslim from Afghanistan? 
What do you think? Um, I would neither, to be honest with you. I, I didn't say you have to answer one or the other. I know you prefer to go back in your time machine to when uh, John Wayne was there doing A Quiet Man. We all want to go back to Kong before they had electricity, but we can't do that. We cannot do that. We can only go forward, and you can only go forward with the material that you have at hand. And so that, you're saying it's, it's inevitable that we're going to be all race-mixing in Ireland? It's not inevitable. Nothing is inevitable when you have human choice. But I'm saying you are subjected. You are now being subjected to weaponized migration. The question is, how are you going to deal with it? Are you just going to make a, a, a kind of blanket uh, uh, judgment about everyone and saying Muslims from Afghanistan are the same as Catholics from Senegal? I think that would be a mistake. I think that would be a mistake because you've got to work with something. I mean, yeah, it would be great if, if, if we could just snap our fingers and go back to Kong in 1952, but we can't do that. Yeah, but Ireland's different to America, though. This is our this is our nation. We've had this for thousands and thousands of years. Yes, we've had Spanish Armada here. We've had um, the Vikings, English, also Scots, yes, but America's different. The native indigenous Indians were there, and it was colonized by... British and Germans and Irish, that's completely, it's not the same. You're no. absolutely right. You're absolutely, it is not the same, but there are similarities. And I'm trying to say that you can learn from the similarities. Are you going to say it's not the same? So therefore we can't learn anything about the ethnic cleansing of the Irish in, in Philadelphia. I think that would be foolish to write that off because that's your situation right now. It's it, obviously it's mutatis mutandis. Nothing is ever exactly the same. It's not the same as Southwest Philadelphia in 1960. Obviously, it's not. But there are similarities. And the question is, can we learn from history by using logos uh, as our power of abstraction and coming up with some type of understanding? That's the question. Or are you just going to retreat into some type of, well, I, I, look, I don't want to create invidious comparisons here. It's your, I'm, I'm trying to help you. I have Irish blood. If you want to talk about Irish blood, I've got it. Okay, and I'm saying that this is there's a better way to deal with this issue. Right. Well, we've talked about that topic for long enough. Um, let me see. I've got more some more questions for you here now, Doctor Jones. Um, I've talked about Trump already. Um, are there any Catholic or nationalist parties in Europe? What stand out for you? Uh, look, when when you get to countries like Poland and Hungary you don't have, you've got a parliamentary system. And so you can have uh, small parties and I'm sure there are uh, small parties uh, uh, that have, that are more Catholic than the bigger parties. Uh, but because they're small, they tend to uh, lack the type of influence that bigger parties have. The question is, how do you, how do you, the, what, what am I talking about here? The question, the big issue is representative democracy in a country like Poland, Hungary, Croatia, Ireland, Spain. These are traditionally Catholic countries that have been colonized by the new world order. How do you retain Catholic identity? Uh, lots of times, the if you have no cultural identity, you will never be able to have political power because you won't have the basis for a political party. So maybe in a weakened state, 
maybe it has to, but you have to trans, you have to, you have to draw the line of the culture. I think that's, that's what happened uh, in Poland. I think we helped Poland uh, by drawing the line against sexual subversion. I think we won the battle against gay marriage in Poland, largely because of libido dominandi. And once that's the case, then you can move forward, but you have to secure that kind of base because if you don't do that, you can't move forward. And I don't think Ireland is in a situation like that now because of the devastation that uh, these, the devastating effect that these referenda have had on the Irish people. Well, how was Poland able to thwart um, liberalism um, better than Ireland has? Like, what's the difference? Because both countries are quite Catholic. How did Poland deal with it better than Ireland? Largely because of Pope John Paul II. They had a leader. Do you have do you have a leader of the stature of John Paul II? Uh, uh, secondly, it was historical circumstances. They had they were occupied by an obvious villain known as communism. So the Soviet Union, everybody knew they were bad. The, the the Poles knew they were occupied, and they knew that the people who occupied them were uh, oppressing them, and they didn't like them. That's you had that situation in Ireland. When the British ruled Ireland, you knew who the enemy was. The problem is now you don't know who the enemy is. You can't identify the enemy. You can't identify Google as the enemy. The church has cannot the church cannot be effective unless the church understands who the enemy is. And that's why Ireland is in such a mess right now. All right, Dr. Jones, we're coming up to the hour now. I don't want to keep you any longer. Um I want to thank you for coming on. If you've got any more, uh, or actually, I forgot to say, you're, I've linked your website below, Culture Wars. If you want to get any um, of E. Michael Jones' books, there's a link below. Um, you've got a magazine too, don't you, Dr. Jones? Yes, Culture Wars magazine comes out every month. I've said it before. We have to establish secure channels of communication. The only way you and I, you and your readers can do this is by coming to culturewars.com and buying a book or subscribing to the magazine. That means that YouTube, that the ADL can't go to YouTube, they can't go to Google, they can't do that type of thing because we have a secure channel of communication, which is absolutely necessary during a time of psychological warfare because psychological warfare is the disruption, the prohibition of uh, un uh, unacceptable speech uh, among subject peoples. We have to circumvent that. So go to culturewars.com. Look into what I've said here. This is the, I did this research to help people so that they don't bark up the wrong tree here, which is what people are doing right now, finding scapegoats and things like Vatican II. Read John Cardinal Crowe and the Cultural Revolution to find out what really happened to Vatican II and what really happened in those Irish neighborhoods in Philadelphia. Slaughter of cities, libido dominandi, Jewish revolutionary spirit, and of course, Logos Rising. All of these are available at fidelitypress.org or culturewars.com. Brilliant. E. Michael Jones, thanks so much for coming on. I'll have you on again really soon, hopefully. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. God bless. Bye. Okay, that was uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones there. As I said already, I think I've linked his website in the description. The first one, uh, so let me check here now, culturewars.com. He has a magazine. We have uh, 
circumvent on YouTube and all these online platforms. Um, just like him, we've got our own newspaper. If you're new to the channel, uh, you've never heard about it before. It's a hard-lined Irish Catholic patriotic nationalist uh, newspaper. We deliver worldwide, um, very cheap. Now, this is the middle pages of poster that you can frame, or Lady of Fatima. We've got people writing for us, uh, like Andrew Joyce. He wrote an article called Irish Nationalism and the Irish Race. You see there, that's his article there, Andrew Joyce. We've got uh, Joseph Pierce. He's written an article, Garota Coleman. It's a fantastic uh, newspaper, third issue there. We're going to print now with the fourth issue. It's a bi-monthly newspaper. Um, if you're so if you haven't read our newsletter, please check it out in the description. Scroll down, click on it, and we ship worldwide. It's absolutely fantastic. We've distributed 50,000 of the first three issues. Absolutely fantastic. And thanks to everybody who supported us already. Issue four is in the pipeline. Um, and also, think about joining our political party, Shield and the Hearn, the only Irish nationalist party that are active on the streets, engaged in pro-life political action. Let me see if I can get it up here now. So that's our political party. Uh, there's links below to join as a member. You get a free badge. This doesn't do it any favors at all. It's beautiful. Free proclamation, five foot by three foot flag, Irish Republic flag, and a little key fob. So there's links below to join. Um, so I want to thank you, Michael Jones. Uh, for the interview, uh, check out our YouTube channel if you're new new here. We are involved in pro-life political action. We do upload videos every day. I think you'll really enjoy them. Uh, so let me go into the live chat there to see how we're all doing. Katie Marie, how are you doing? How's California? Stephen Kenny, how are you doing? God bless. The Fenian from Scotland, how are you doing? Beautiful bags. The Fenian from Scotland, sign up. You'll really love us. Worth um, becoming a member of the badge alone. Um, how Bosco, how you doing, young man? Uh, Rising Gale, how's it going? Lady Rafa, about you, Brian Murphy, um, John Nilligan, Lady Rafa again, Orion, Donald Casey, uh, Aiden Fletcher, how's it going? Balling across rows, Sheen on the Hair, cool, how are we doing? Uh, no name, about you. Uh, who else is there? Robbie. Any questions there? Irish M, how are you doing? Celtic Girl, how's it going? Sinead, how's it going? Jean, how are you doing? Talos, lots of new names in the live chats. Okay, so before I go, like the like the video, hit the subscribe button, hit the bell notification, please. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic. Really enjoyed Mr. Jones. Uh, let me see now. I'm using StreamYard here. I'm not particularly used to it, to be honest with you. Um, okay, so that's it for tonight. Just past the hour, Mark, there. did you just enjoy the life? Or did you enjoy the uh, the show? Hope you did. Um, I'm going to leave it there, right? Thanks for tuning in, everybody. God bless you all. Aaron Gobra.